We're all familiar with the names Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, and Lou Gehrig, but chances are the names Eric Gregg, Don Denkinger, and John Hirschbeck don't ring any bells. They're among what New York Times writer Bruce Weber refers to as baseball's invisible men, umpires. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Coming up on this morning's show, we'll talk with Weber about his new book, as they see him, a fan's travels in the land of umpires. We'll also meet a couple of umps who call amateur games throughout the metropolitan region. But first, we put baseball fans to the test. How much do they really know about umpires? We pose that question to baseball enthusiasts outside Yankee Stadium on opening day. Christian Zangara. I'm from Clifton, New Jersey. I don't know too much about the job of umpiring. I only played baseball. My name is Stephen Molan. I live in Port Morris in the Bronx. In professional baseball, I think it's very hard for them to umpire the game, and they definitely need um, to make it fair and accurate. They definitely need instant replay, more help, like the NFL, and they need something to help them with the strike zones, something more scientific. My name is Fred Woodnicki. I came from North Hollywood, California. I think the umpires got a tough job because no matter what they call, if it's close, somebody doesn't like it. My name is Keith Wilhelmson from uh, Englewood, New Jersey. The umpire controls the game. I respect them. They should get a little more credit. They're human, and a lot of people tend to forget that, especially when your home team, you know, they make a call that uh, doesn't go to home team's way. So I think they have a very hard job. I'm from Fort Lee, New Jersey, and my name is Alan Sawatsky. Well, the umps are a necessary part of the game to enforce the rules, but usually they're blind when they put my team out. I say they need glasses. <laughs> As a lifelong baseball fan, New York Times writer Bruce Weber says he didn't realize how little he knew about umpires until he was assigned to do a feature story on them. Weber enrolled in umpire school and conducted scores of interviews with men in blue. His story grew into a book called As They See Him, A Fan's Travels in the Land of Umpires. It's out now from Scribner, and Bruce is here to talk about it. Good morning. Uh, Hi, George. Nice to be here. How is that? How can you be a lifelong baseball fan and not know anything about umpiring? Well, umpires are under the radar, I think. Uh, One of the interesting things about them, and one of the reasons that I kind of enjoyed exploring, you know, their world and, and, and the topic of umpires in general is that they are sort of a cult operating in plain sight. I mean, anybody who's a baseball fan is sort of aware that they're out there on the field, but it's amazing. If you watch a game, you can actually watch the game and look at them and not see them in a certain way, um, unless there is a controversial call or, you know, they, one of them makes a, a, a terrible mistake. But in general, the game goes on with them in the middle of it, but as a fan, you don't ever learn or assimilate what it is they do. Uh, And they do actually quite a lot. Learning to be a, uh, say, a second base umpire is the equivalent of learning to be a second baseman. There are responsibilities on every single play, and there are instincts that need to be honed. Uh, It's like learning another position on the field. But their view of the field is drastically different than that of a player or a fan. That's absolutely the case. I mean, among other things, uh, the thing that actually determines their view on the field is that they don't root. 
In fact, most umpires will tell you that they came to the game as fans, and as soon as they became umpires, it, se- it seemed perfectly clear that they shouldn't be rooting, and, it, and the, the rooting instinct gets drummed out of you right away. But one of the th- things that happens as a result of that is that you don't perceive the game as a contest. It, it doesn't have a dramatic element for you. Uh, instead, you see it in terms of singular episodes, you know, one pitch, one hit, one ground ball, one throw, one line drive that either lands fair or foul. Um, the game is, uh, you know, one element at a time, each one precisely as important as the one before and the one that can and the one after. So you, you look at the game in an entirely different way. How stressful is it? Because I would imagine look down once and you lost your vision. You lost your shot at calling that play right. That's correct. You know, baseball as many people have said, I'm certainly not going to be the first, this kind of makes a fetish of failure. A man who gets a hit only once every three times at bat is a batting champion. Uh, there are several pitchers in the Hall of Fame who have lost 200 games. But the umpire is somebody that we expect to get it right every single time, and if he doesn't, you know, there's hell to pay. I mean, somebody's going to argue, there's going to be hostility coming from uh, one side or both sides, and the uh, and the and as well as the fans, I mean, there's a certain amount of uh, pressure and tension just involved in that. But uh, when you carry that line of reasoning out to uh, the sort of vigilance that's necessary uh, in order to be perfect, I mean, you blink at the wrong time, and you know, and you're screwed. You know, umpires like to say you don't ever want the ball to be on the ground without your knowing how it got there, and that's sort of an umpire mantra. I like to talk about the the guy who umpires at third base, you know, which umpires facetiously call the rocking chair because it's uh, it's seemingly uh, a lazy day on the field. There's less that happens at third base than there is uh, anywhere at, at any of the other umpiring positions. You can go an entire game without having uh, without having a call. But imagine if you only have one call and it's a crucial call and you mess it up. So the kind of vigilance that's required at third base is in a certain way um, more demanding than it is anywhere else because you re- it's, it's a kind of self-starting vigilance. You've got you've to be ready even though the likelihood that something's going to happen is not very high. Talking about messing up one call, shall we talk about the 1985 World Series? Sure, sure. The call you're discussing, of course, is uh, probably the most famous blown call in the history of baseball. The umpire was Don Denkinger. Uh, He was at first base in the bottom of the ninth of the sixth game of the World Series between uh, St. Louis Cardinals and the Kansas City Royals. The game was being played in Kansas City, and the Cardinals were ahead one to nothing. And the first Kansas City hitter in the bottom of the ninth um, was a man named George Orta, and he hit a slow ground ball between first and second that uh, the Cardinals' first baseman, Jack Clark, came rushing in to grab, and he flipped it to the pitcher, Todd Worrell, who was covering, and Denkinger called the runner safe when it was pretty clear to everyone at the time uh, that he was out. And in fact, as replays showed, he was out by a good half step. It wasn't even a close play. The uh, Royals went on to win that game, and then the next day defeated the Cardinals 11 to nothing. And Cardinal fans, to this day, have not forgiven Don Denkinger for robbing them of the 1985 World Series. This guy received death threats. Uh, Yeah, the FBI was called in. There was a radio station in St. Louis that, in its anger, published his, uh, you know, and broadcast his 
home address and phone number in Iowa. And uh, St. Louis fans, misguided ones, uh, took out their hostility on uh, Mr. Denkinger and his family. It took several months for this to be straightened out. There is a quote in your book that you know it's a good game when the umpire goes unnoticed. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's sort of a a baseball truism, even if it isn't true. Um, You know, the best umpire is the one you don't notice. The best umpire, I guess, is the one you don't notice unless you need him. It's often the case, and maybe it's uh, maybe it because I'm now a little attuned to uh, to the umpires. But there are many moments in ball games where, if the umpire hadn't act, doesn't act, things could descend into chaos. Just to give you one example, if there is a uh, bean ball, a guy throws up and in, and it enrages the hitter, and the hitter starts out for the mound. It's up to the umpire to stop this. And if uh, and I've seen terrific umpiring. Terrific umpiring is leaping out in front of that guy or grabbing him to prevent a calamity. That's not the umpire not being noticed. That's the umpire taking an aggressive stand to make sure the game is held under control. So in general, it's true, but I, I, you know, it's, it's always something. I, I think in, in, in some ways it diminishes the umpire's role to say that if you don't notice him, he's had a good game. Although, you know, I, I understand the impulse to, to, to believe that, too. What's it like to be the home plate umpire, to have those balls thrown in your face <laughs> at 90 miles per hour? Well, I did get behind the plate. As part of the research for this book, I did get behind the plate for a major league spring training game. And I think it's, uh, you know, it was three terrifying innings of guys throwing 90 to 95 miles an hour. The statistic that I, I think my favorite statistic in the entire book is that the a 90-mile-an-hour fastball spends about one one-hundredth of a second in the strike zone. It's virtually impossible for a fan who is watching on TV or sitting in the stands to understand how difficult it is to call balls and strikes. You know, watching um, a major, for a major league pitcher who is throwing 90 to 95 miles an hour with the kind of um, movement on the pitches that these guys can create. In fact, although the night before, I, uh, when I was thinking about doing this, uh, when I was thinking about what was what it was going to be like, I was wondering whether or not I'd actually be able to see the ball. Uh, but in fact, I could. I could see it. But the thing that was astounding to me was uh, the breaking stuff, the curveballs, the sliders. They break so sharply, and each one breaks differently from the one before. It breaks a little, uh, you know, we talk about a pitcher having a curveball, when in fact, every curveball is different. Uh, they might be. They may be related, but one will break a little sooner. One will break a little sharper. One will break a little rounder. It's really difficult to actually call these pitches. I don't know how anybody actually hits them. The way I use to describe breaking stuff is that it's as though there's a little man inside the ball behind a steering wheel, and he's got kind of a NASCAR mentality because he's really. I mean, the, the, these balls move as though someone is really screeching around the far turn. I mean, it's uh, it's remarkable. The strike zone, of course, is invisible. Uh-huh. That shocked you <laughs> when you got behind home plate. Well, I think like a lot of fans, you know, I've watched so many games on TV now, and they have this, uh, you know, this technology where they superimpose that little yellow box on the, uh, you know, on the screen, and you kind of think, oh, well, that's the strike zone. It's perfectly easy to see. The, why can't the umpires see this? And then you get behind the plate, and then, lo and behold, that little yellow box isn't there. And what uh, what the strike zone actually is is this kind of shoebox-shaped box of air uh, that's kind of sitting, kind of hovering, uh, you know, a foot above the ground, and uh, 
you know, you have to locate it in your own mind. You've got to, you know, you have to determine what its dimensions are. It doesn't, um, you know, there isn't anybody out there drawing it for you. You have to draw it yourself. And it's, you know, it, it, it sounds self-evident, but believe me, it's not. Tell us how they teach you not to flinch behind <laughs> home plate at umpire school. Uh I, I sort of thought of this as a particular as a particular lesson meant for me, but I was standing behind the plate one day just practicing uh, with a pitching machine. There was a catcher in front of me, and the pitching machine was throwing uh, was throwing pitches, and I was calling balls and strikes. And the instructor, Jim Evans, who was a big league umpire uh, for 28 years, actually, and who runs the school, he was watching me do this, and he said, uh, you know, you're flinching, meaning that I wasn't, uh, I was blinking or my head was moving each time the the ball would come at me and I would be afraid the catcher was going to miss it. So he took me aside and he said, look, what an umpire needs to do is you not only have to trust your catcher, you got to trust your equipment. So he took a bucket of baseballs and he backed up, oh, I would say four or five feet. I mean, not very far at all. He told me to get in my stance and then one by one, he picked up those balls and started flinging them directly at my mask. And he wasn't gently just plunking them off. He was flat, you know, he was throwing them hard. And he said, don't flinch, don't flinch, don't flinch. And there were 10, 12, 15 balls. And by the time I, he got to the bottom of his, the bottom of his bucket, I had absorbed the lesson that, you know what, this is not going to hit me in the eye. And I could watch the ball. I could watch the ball right into the mask without blinking. Speaking of that mask, you write in the book that one of the first things that umpires were taught is how to remove that mask without upsetting their hat. That's correct. That's correct. I mean, it sounds like a trivial thing, I know. Um, But in fact, it's not so trivial. Uh, And it's not trivial for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, the umpire needs to maintain the uh, demeanor of an authoritative person. Uh, He needs to maintain the, uh, the, the, the confident aspect of his job. If he takes off his mask and his hat is tipped to the side or if it falls in the dirt every time he takes off his mask to make a call, he looks like a dope, and nobody respects that. But the other thing is that uh, if you take off your mask and your hat tips into your eyes, you're going to miss something. Uh, so there is an absolute method for taking off the mask so that your eyes maintain contact with what you're supposed to be watching, and that's what we were, that's what we were learning. And the size of the brim makes a difference as well, right, well, of the well, hat. Well, if you're a, uh, you know, if, if, you're not as, if you're as inept as I was, yes, uh, the smaller the brim, the easier it is to take the mask off. <laughs> Let's talk about the baseball rule book. I'm sure a lot of fans would be surprised at just how many rules and the kinds of rules that are in there. The rule book is, uh, I think it's 125 pages, and it's... Um, uh, is an awful lot of people who th- think of themselves as uh, as very good baseball fans, and they think that they know the rules. But I'm here to tell you that uh, that the umpire's rule book is much, much different from the fans' rule book. Give us one example of what's in there that would surprise someone. Uh, sure, um, just something, just something simple. That if an umpire notices that the you know that uh, and most fans are familiar uh, with seeing a pitcher wearing uh, an undershirt that has long sleeves, if uh, the umpire sees that one sleeve on the pitcher's uh, undershirt is rolled up and the other one is not, he has to tell the pitcher to roll that sleeve to roll that sleeve down. Uh, the sleeves have to be the, the the undershirt sleeves have to be the same length. There's actually a good reason for that, but uh, you know you wouldn't think it was in the rule book. The reason is that 
uh, if when the pitcher winds up, if uh, if it's not if his garb is not symmetrical, it might very well be distracting to the hitter. Hmm. Who knew? There you go. <laughs> is it a physically demanding job? Physically demanding in the sense that it can be grueling. Uh, you know, the just the idea of standing on your feet for uh, three hours plus is. Uh, you know, I don't know about you, but it's, I find that uncomfortable. You don't have to be a triathlete to be an umpire, but you do have to be physically robust. Um, you know, there is a fair amount of running. These guys rotate uh, a lot uh, during the game. There, there is a, you know, they run around a lot more than most fans think. And if you don't think that's true, just spend an inning or two watching them and you'll see what I mean. Aspiring umpires often say that they're chasing the dream. What do they mean by that, chasing the dream? Well, the dream for any... Anyone in the minor leagues or anyone, and that's players, umpires, coaches, uh, you know, is the major leagues. Uh, these guys who would like to be uh, professional umpires, what they, wanted to, what they want is to make the major leagues. And it's a virtually impossible dream. I mean, that's the kind of incredible thing about these guys who go to umpire school. They have almost no, they have almost no shot. Uh, there are between... On an average year, there uh, about uh, 250 young men go to um, um, one of the two umpire schools. And of those 250, 50 get sent on to a minor league evaluation camp. And of those 50, maybe 20 or 30 get hired at the lowest level of the minor leagues. And of those 20 or 30 probably none will make it to the big leagues. I mean, it's, uh, the, the, the figure is about, uh, about one out of 100 minor league umpires ever makes it to the big leagues. So the, the odds against uh, someone actually achieving the dream that they're ostensibly tracing, uh, chasing, is, uh, they're, they're pretty low. And I know you do not envy those minor league umpires. It's I don't a know why. life. I don't know why they would put themselves through it. The pay is miserable. The travel is grueling. The accommodations are you know, generally awful. You know, they drive, most of these guys, particularly in the low minor leagues, drive between cities. And in some of the leagues, the drives can be three, four, five, even 600 miles. And, and you know, so they do a game at night, get in their car, drive overnight, sleep a few hours during the day, and then, uh, and then do another, uh, and then do another game uh, the following night. You know, they travel together them, uh, themselves and, uh, you know, they don't necessarily have to uh, have to like each other, and yet they have to rely on each other because everybody else hates them. The two teams on the field are both screaming at them. The, uh, the, in the minor leagues, you know, the coaches and the, and the managers are probably old enough to be their fathers. Uh, and then, of course, the highly partisan hometown fans in very small stadiums that puts them very close to the action. So it's... Uh, the hostility of their work environment is, <laughs> it's just hostile. Uh, you know, I don't know of any job where somebody expects to go to work uh, to find that amount of enmity, except maybe if you're a prison guard. Baseball, of course, is the only sport where someone, a non-player, can go on the field and argue a call. That's right. It's allowed, you know, it's very much a part of um, the baseball tradition. Uh, you know, you don't see it in any other sport. It's something that uh, I think has been in the game for, since the 19th century for the entertainment of the fans. Uh, there are, well, I did a little historical research, and there were some club owners who said that, uh, you know, that this, was, this was good for the game, holding up the umpire as the hometown enemy. It is actually one of, the, uh, one of the ways in which they got fans to the park. It was a way in which the fans were entertained, and I still think it's, uh, 
It's very much a part of the baseball tradition. Umpires, though, do have the authority to kick someone out of the game. Mm-hmm. They do. They do. They don't, they don't want to do that. I mean, the, this is the other interesting thing about uh, they can protect themselves in some way by throwing somebody out of the game, but they're very much aware that by doing so, they can kick the game out of balance. I mean, the idea is not is the idea is allow the players to decide the game. Don't take the game on your own shoulders. Don't be the one who decides the game. This is something that umpires get criticized for quite often for being too aggressive for thinking that the fans are there to see them. I think they're criticized for it too much, but. You know, it is nonetheless something that that angers fans when they they see umpires taking matters into their own hands too much. In the book, you write that umpires, long before the 2007 steroid scandal broke, Mm -hmm. that umpires knew some players were juicing up. Yep, they did. You know, umpires are, this goes along with what we were talking about in terms of uh, arguments. I mean, the, the, the baseball field at the professional level, there's a very high level of tension and hostility already there. I mean, just the... The level of competition just kind of requires it. These guys are playing for their living, and they are, you know, and professional athletes are attuned to competition in a way that I think many ordinary citizens aren't. And umpires are there to keep that, uh, you know, to keep that tension, you know, functioning productively as opposed to function, functioning non-productively. And they're quite attuned to, to, you know, to its fluctuations. You know, sometimes it gets tenser than others. One of the ways in which the tension gets ratcheted up is when people are, you know, people are drugged. There is, you know, there is this roid rage kind of, uh, you know, kind of thing that umpires were very familiar with during the 1990s. Why not blow the whistle? Well, uh, because it's not their job. I would imagine that, uh, you know, I, I had a couple of guys explain this to me, and one one of them said, look, you know, if I went over to a manager and said, hey, you know, your third baseman is so high, he's frothing at the mouth, what that manager says to me is, hey, you do your job and let me do mine. I'll take care of my team. You describe umpires as a gruff bunch off the field. Mm-hmm. Big drinkers, they may do things that would upset their wives while on the road. Well, I mean, you know, the uh, I don't want to paint them paint them with uh, with that brush. Uh, what I said in the book was these are guys who travel a lot. They are uh, they have a nocturnal profession that's, uh, you know, that's that's high stress. There are temptations, yes. Yet on the field, their integrity is rarely compromised, and that's been the case throughout history. Correct. It's not, uh, you know, the, the, the just about every other element of the game has been compromised by some kind of uh, corruption scandal. I mean, Pete Rose was a manager with the Cincinnati Reds when he was gambling on games, was players who fixed the 1919 World Series. The owners uh, colluded to keep player salaries down. They, you know, it was a corrupt and illegal act. You could certainly say that uh, that the players' union and the uh, and the owners were at the very, uh, you know, at the very least willfully blind to uh, the use of illegal steroids in the 1990s. Umpires have never, well, I, I don't want to say never. There was one case in 1882 uh, in which uh, an umpire was accused of corruption and was thrown out of the game, though it was a dubious charge. At least, oddly enough, that man's uh, that man's great grandson called me up one day to say these were spurious charges against my great against my great grandfather. So I, I don't want to uh, I, I don't want to upset that fellow. But uh, he was, in fact, there was a man named Richard Hyam, and when 1882 was thrown out of the game for ostensibly. Uh, 
consorting with gamblers. But the charges were made by a uh, by a team owner who uh, against whom uh, Mr. Hyam had made a had made a call he didn't like. So. <laughs> The book is As They See Him, A Fan's Travels in the Land of Umpires. Bruce Weber, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. As They See Him is out now from Scribner. You ask me if I need glasses And you tell me I'm blind as a bat Say that I'm ugly and stupid And you cordially say that I'm fat Now your pitcher just bought that one batter That's his fourth or his fifth of the game Now you're yelling at me and you're spitting at me And you're asking if I am insane You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. If you ever wanted to try your hand at umpiring, there are training opportunities close to home. The American Federation of Umpires can teach you the skills to call amateur games. We caught up with a couple of their umps before they went onto the field for a New York City Metro Baseball League game between the Bronx Royals and the New York Longhorns. My name is Roger Frontera, and I'm an umpire for AFU Gateway Umpires. My name is Al Mayo. I'm uh, umpire for AFU Gateway Umpires. Roger, how long have you been umpiring? George, I'm in uh, my 17th season umpiring. I believe I started in 1992, and I've been doing all kinds of levels of baseball. I, I do high schools, and I've done the colleges. We do Sandlot. We start our baseball season starts in March, and it ends in the end of October. So if anybody's interested in becoming an umpire, you can see you can make a couple bucks, and uh, we train. Al, how about you? I've been doing this for eight years, my eighth season. I've done all different types of level, college wooden bat, down to Sandlot, uh, level 60-foot diamonds for the little leagues and everything. What drew you to umpiring? Actually, I had a, a son that was uh, playing baseball and uh, coached him. And when they age out, generally you want to stay involved with the game. You love the game so much. So uh, at that point, I was doing a local little league umpiring through American Federation, and then I went full-time with them. Roger, how about you? Somebody that lived on my block, his name was Andrew Cangelosi. That's a plug. Um, Andrew had been bugging me to become an umpire, and I says to Andrew, well, my, my two boys played college ball. One went to John Jay, played ball, and one went to Seton Hall, got drafted. He played for the uh, San Francisco Giants. He was on the 40-man Major League roster. Okay, and when they, uh, when they uh, were playing ball, what happened was I wanted to stay, into the, stay in the game, and I became an umpire. And uh, I feel that if anybody's interested in becoming an umpire, especially uh, in the metropolitan area, um, we'll be too glad to have them come on board with us. We do train the umpires. It's a 12-week session in January. goes for 12 weeks, and we professionally train them at the amateur level. What's involved in the training, Al? Uh, we uh, do everything from uh, we bring them indoors, and we start uh, first Tuesday after New Year's, and we do it for 12 weeks, and everybody else is watching football, and we're actually out there every Tuesday night in thir- you know 30-degree weather and snowstorms. Um, we do uh, about an hour and a half, two hours. We have a, a rules interpreter, Dave Meckelberg. He uh, 
goes over rules, situations. He's the man is the guru of rules, as we call him. And uh, then afterwards, for about an hour and a half, we go indoors into a gym where we go through what we call the mechanics, such as balls, strikes, safes, outs. And we go through some situations there, wacker drills, things like that for the base work. Is it a stressful job, Roger? Yes, it is very stressful, especially for a new guy starting out. And uh, that's, uh, see, that's uh, one, of, one of our reasons why we run these classes, because we also teach them um, not only the mechanics, but we, talk, we teach them game management, how to talk to the coaches, how to talk to the, uh, the ball players. And really what we're looking for, we're looking for uh, an individual, a man or a woman, in maybe their 30s or 40s, so they're a little bit more mature, and they can handle those situations. How much pride do you take in your calls? Oh, I take a ton of pride in my calls. That's, that's what we're paid to do. And what about the way you verbalize that call? Do you work on that? I, yeah, I do. Uh, I do. Or actually in uh, February, if you're on the Cross Bronx Expressway, you'll, I'll uh, actually go through my uh, strike call and uh, just to, because that's different from a ball call. It's a much, ball is much more relaxed. Uh, strike call, again, you're selling it. The catcher's selling it to you. Uh, the pitcher's selling it. Batter, of course, is trying to sell a ball. So, you know, you have to make sure that you're emphatic about certain things. Could I get you to give me a call now? What do you Which think? One you want? I don't know. Whichever one you want to give me. I can give you a ball call. Ball call is regular, just ball. Strike call is just more of a and that's how it comes out. Yeah, you might have play at second base, and the, the throw comes from the catchers. There's a base runner stealing, and the, the throw is in there, and you might be saying, Can I see the ball? Can I see the ball? Because a lot of dirt up in the air, they show you the ball. You're out. <laughs> Roger, thank you so much. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Al, thank you. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Roger Frontera and Al Mayo are umpires with the American Federation of Umpires. The group is online at AmericanFederationOfUmpires.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Michal Neria. Have a great weekend.